Hello, and welcome to the APTA Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast discussion of telehealth and vestibular rehab. My name is Maureen Clancy, and I'm a physical therapist who has worked in clinical practice for over 17 years. I am joined by two therapists who have extensive experience and passion for telehealth. Sarah Osborne received her Bachelor of Arts in Kinesiology and Master's Degree in Physical Therapy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Sarah has been Director of the Physical Therapy Department at the National Dizzy Imbalance Center since 2008. NDBC sees over 3,000 new patients a year with complaints of dizziness and imbalance. She enjoys treating a wide range of vestibular disorders with a particular interest in concussion and vestibular migraine. In addition to clinical practice, Sarah is a member of the leadership team of the Vestibular Special Interest Group through the ABTA. Sarah has been involved in the development of a new ABTA-sponsored course entitled Expanding Neurologic Expertise, Introduction to Vestibular Rehab. Dr. Sarah Gallagher, PT, DBT, NCS, graduated with her doctorate from MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston, Massachusetts, and completed an internship at Mass General Hospital in acute care. After working several years in hospital settings focusing in trauma, she transitioned to an outpatient setting. South Valley Physical Therapy specializes in neurologic and vestibular rehabilitation, and as an owner, she collaborates with regional and national experts to ensure the most evidence-based and cutting-edge treatment. Dr. Gallagher identified that access to expert vestibular rehab is limited due to limited expertise in the state of Colorado, long travel distances, and dizziness impeding commuting to the clinic. This problem led her to found the Dizzy Clinic, which provides vestibular rehab via video conferencing. Founded in 2017, she lectures at the University of Colorado PT School on Vestibular Rehabilitation and Telehealth. Sarah was awarded Clinical Instructor of the Year in 2017 by the CU PT School. She founded the Colorado Vestibular Support Group, is a member of the ABTA Neurologic Section and Vestibular Special Interest Group on the Abstract Committee, and founded and chairs the Vestibular Special Interest Group Telehealth Task Force. She authored an article, Vestibular Disorder Association on Telehealth with Vestibular Patients, published in January of 2018. Welcome to both of you, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So my first question um, for Sarah O is, what vestibular diagnoses are appropriate to treat through telehealth? So currently at our clinic, we've identified kind of our top diagnoses that we look to offer telehealth to our patients for. The diagnoses that we feel like best kind of fit with our telehealth program, um, 3PD is a really nice diagnosis to treat via telehealth where it's easy to, it helps the patient not have to drive long distances, which can be a trigger for dizziness. Likewise, vestibular migraine, if we're not having to work on any cervical impairments, we will treat vestibular migraine via telehealth. Some of our hypo functions are appropriate. And then even some of our concussion patients, kind of once they're to a good point where we're just working on vestibular exercises and the progressions, we'll see some of those patients remotely as well. Pretty much any patient, though, we, we identify could be a, a candidate for telehealth. The one thing we're just watching to make sure is they're not at a risk for falling. And if they need extensive balance work, that's something we'd like to have them uh, come in and do in person. Okay. Now, are you treating the patient solely through telehealth or do you do like an evaluation in the clinic and then transition them to telehealth? Yeah, so in our clinic, um, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I think Sarah and I kind of each have a, a slightly different models as well, which is good. And, and really, either one can work. I think you certainly can see the patient solely through telehealth. Um, at our clinic, we like to do an evaluation in person first. And then some of our patients that are quite far away, we, we're in Minnesota, and some come from North Dakota, Wisconsin, Iowa. Um, so those patients will treat solely through telehealth. Then we have some patients that live maybe just an hour, hour and a half away. And those patients, we might do a hybrid model where we do two or three sessions via telehealth. And then we have them come back in. That way we can kind of reassess um, some functional measures in person, or we can try a few exercises that are a little harder to do over telehealth. And then we have some patients that even do every other week where over our telehealth platform will kind of progress their dizzy exercises, but then for some of the balance portion, they'll come in in person. So um, at our clinic, we, we kind of can use a bunch of different models. But I think Sarah can speak to this too, what works best at her practice in Colorado. We're very similar is we use a flexible model. Our strong preference is to evaluate the patient in clinic first so that we can introduce the potential concepts of telehealth if they seem like they're going to be a candidate for them for that. Uh, and we can introduce them to the technology, make sure that they seem appropriate and explain some of how that will work. Um, and then some patients just can't come into the clinic and we treat them solely as Sarah described in her model as well. And we treat them solely via telehealth, which is a great option for them as well because they would not have access otherwise. And then most of our, our patients, it's a very flexible model. So we may not have um, a signed schedule of telehealth. We might say, let's do your next session via telehealth. We're going to schedule three sessions. We know we need to see you for the next three weeks, let's say. Let's schedule your next one via telehealth. We're, these are going to be our goals for our next session. And then we'll keep that fluid, whether we want the next session and the next session to be telehealth or come in. Usually we end up doing more via telehealth once we start the patient via telehealth because uh, they start really enjoying not have to commute, not have to arrange transportation, and they see how much they can actually get done at home and how similar it is. So, um, but we keep it very flexible. Sometimes I'll say, okay, that's a little unusual for your course. Why don't we have you come in and I want to do some testing with goggles, for example. Yeah, that's, I think that's great. And the one thing you spoke to that I think is nice is like showing them the platform in person and even trying it out in the clinic. And that just saves some kind of technical difficulties that could come up down the line. Now, if the patient, um, if you don't see them first in the clinic and you just are only seeing them through like the telehealth um, program, how are they getting referred to you? Is it like through the same process as it would happen if they were coming into the clinic or, or do you have like a different method for that? I'll, I'll speak to that. This is Sarah Gallagher. So our referral method is the same. So few patients will come to our clinic saying, I heard about this video visits or telehealth option, I need that or want that. And so we'll um, ask them even and if they're approaching us to please come into the clinic first, if possible, um, so that we can do some screening and orient them appropriately. Uh, and then most patients just get referred to our clinic and then in their first session, we might identify some barriers to their rehab that make them a great candidate for telehealth. So we might uh, 
introduce the concept of telehealth on that first visit and say, this is something that we want to look into and maybe use as an option of delivery of care in your course. Okay. Yeah, and that sounds kind of similar to what we're doing. We're just taking existing referrals. Our clinic has gotten referrals from people that have come from quite a distance away for a really long time. So we sought out telehealth as a way to help those patients get um, accessible, high-quality care because we were finding out that wasn't the case when we were sending them back. Uh, so all of our patients are still coming in for that initial evaluation, and we're seeing them in person first. Um, maybe the model will change as we start to kind of advertise telehealth or it gets recognized more, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what can we do with somebody who can't come into the clinic at all. Uh, I think there's more to be determined there. As time goes on. Yeah. Now, um, is there specific platforms that you each are using um, that you found that works well? I don't know which ones each of you use for your practice. Sarah and I both use the same one, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're both using the Doxy platform. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It, that's great. I mean, we've we researched a couple and tried out a couple. Um, I think we tried out Zoom was the other one, but we've had no issues with Doxy and it's HIPAA compliant and, and so far we've it's been really easy for patients to use as well as our clinic. Um, but we didn't really try too many others besides that. When I was starting the practice, I probably demoed maybe seven different platforms just to get an idea of what was out there and what was available. Um, I there are many things, different features that different platforms offer. Um, so some of them have integrated documentation. Some of them have more integrated features for physical therapy in terms of home exercise. Um, Doxy is very simple, and um, there's a couple of reasons why I think both Sarah and I, I like it. One, it's very simple interface for the patient. So it's just a link that they click on and they're automatically connected. They don't have to download anything. It's the same link every time. And then the patient is taken into a virtual uh, waiting room where they wait for the practitioner to bring them into the session. So it's very user-friendly on the patient side, which was important to us. And then it's very easy on the provider side as well to set up. There's not a much of a learning curve there. And then the other benefit is that they provide the, uh, the business associate uh, uh, agreement, which makes the platform HIPAA compliant, whereas many of the other platforms charge a fee for that, a significant fee. So Doxy does not, which makes it quite accessible. And our relative volumes for telehealth patients are, are low. And so we don't, um, we didn't want to invest quite a lot of money in a more sophisticated platform. And even we have reassessed whether we want potentially more features. And so far, the therapist has said, we've been very happy with Doxy. The quality is quite good. Um, it's reliable and simple, and we don't think we need actually any added features. The, the other thing I like about it is, um, you know, a lot of people are going away from desktop computers and things like that. So we've had patients where they can just do the session on their phone, and that's just turning out to be a really nice feature for patients to just log, get onto a web browser on their phone, put the address in, and that way they can also move the phone with them throughout the session. 
because it's really important to keep the patient on camera, especially when you're doing some gate tasks. That gets a little harder with a desktop computer or even a laptop. So um, doing having the patient be able to log on to Doxy and their phone has been really nice from our standpoint. Absolutely. That makes it very like, easy for them. Um, so basically the 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 amount of like equipment that the patient needs is it sounds like it's very limited. They just need either need a laptop or a phone in order to to access the platforms that would be used for this. Um so has there been any specific research to determine how like the satisfaction a patient has versus this platform versus like being in the clinic? I think Sarah Gallagher, you were gonna address that. There, uh, there are some satisfaction surveys being issued, but they are not validated. Um, so, and I have searched around on my own and asked practitioners what they use to capture patient satisfaction, and they are using more standardized or creating their own patient satisfaction and customizing a little bit to specifically to telehealth. So there's not a lot being captured there. Um, there is some research that does speak to patient satisfactions, but it's um, more um, just subjective people giving their their feedback. There are some satisfaction surveys in Canada being used, but again, these seem to be sort of internal use only, not validated. And um, that is something that I think we absolutely need because we need to bring that information back to third-party payers, to providers, to patients, to help um, increase the widespread use of, of telehealth. So it's very important, but right now there's not a lot of satisfaction data out there um, that is validated. Their um, outcomes have been measured, especially in the or uh, orthopedic populations and satisfaction is addressed in, in many of those studies, but like I said, it's it's not um, validated measures. Well, some of it might be also because like we haven't been doing it that as long, so there just hasn't been that time frame to kind of get some of that in place yet either, probably. That is, no, that is really the, I think what's been holding it back is most of the studies are being done um, in either large hospital systems or in the VA because they have been able to get past the barriers, the legislative barriers, the reimbursement barriers. And so they've just created their own satisfaction surveys. So that brings me to a good question as to what Challenges have you found in, in the states that you guys are working in, and Sarah Oxford in particular, you, because it sounds like you're getting patients from different states who may be using this, like in terms of either the legalities of it or the reimbursement standpoint of it, as you're not actually like seeing the patient in the clinic. Yeah, that um, I think, you know, the initial barriers were just kind of being nervous to jump in and be the first group to do this in Minnesota and making sure that that we weren't going to do anything illegal. And we met, we kind of formed a Minnesota APTA task force and met with people um, that were on the Minnesota APTA board. We spoke with our practice act, kind um, of people oversee that. And so that was kind of the first initial thing that we did to see 
know, what is Minnesota like compared to other states out there? And that just gave us the confidence to be able to move. So to continue what I was saying, we, we formed some, a task group and we wrote a white paper, which was really nice to kind of get things going in the state of Minnesota. Um, and once we established what platform we were going to use, the next step was to see if we are getting patients that are coming from across the state border, how can we treat those legally? And doing research, um, we realized that we needed to be licensed in the state the patient was going to be in. So we have therapists currently that hold licenses in our neighboring states so that if we do get somebody that comes across the border, we are able to treat them. You have to have a license in the state the patient is actually in. We've had some questions of patients who go down to winter in Florida, and we have to tell them, unfortunately, we're not able to do that as we don't hold the Florida license. Um, I think the compact being established is looking to kind of help with those barriers, but currently Minnesota is not a compact state. Um, so those are kind of some of the initial barriers that we face, but at this time, um, I think we're doing a pretty good job of overcoming those barriers. Also, just to add on to that, I think it's important for listeners to realize that there's a lot of background research to do before you start performing telehealth. So in um, both Sarah and our cases, not only do we know our home state legislation in terms of physical therapy, but we need to know what are the other telehealth legislative constraints within our state. And so it's you do need to have a license in that in a state that you're practicing in, but you also need to really know the ins and outs of that practice act and what some of the constraints could be. If they don't have direct access, then you need to be getting a referral for in the same way that if you were treating them in clinic. Um, you also need to know if there are special consent um, obligations from other telehealth legislation from that neighboring state. So there's a lot of research to be done. It's not just that you need to have a, um, a license in that state. I just want to emphasize that. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a good point. As I was getting another license in a different state, it was a, it took time to read through the Practice Act and learn their Practice Act because it's quite you know different state to state. So um, that's, that's great that you brought that up because each state is going to be slightly different. And I think the compact is good that it opened doors, but therapists have to be educated on, on differences between state, as well as billing from state to state. That's going to be something that's quite different. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Absolutely. So you found that you don't, the therapist doesn't actually have to be physically in the state that the patient is in at the time that they're treating them, at least in the states that you've kind of used, Sarah Oxborough, I think it sounds like, but that could vary from state to state. No, I'm pretty sure that so what practice acts is it's covering the patient in the home state. So the therapist, they don't have to be in the same state that the patient is located in, but you have to be licensed in that state. So in our case, if, a, if, if we weren't licensed in a state, but the, the patient, you know, drove over to a coffee shop that was in Minnesota, we could treat them via telehealth. But if they're physically located um, in North Dakota, we have to have a license. For that, so when we start a session, we have to talk to their our patients um, about where they are located. We include that in our documentation. Okay. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. You know, many states do not actually have language in their PT practice acts 
regarding telehealth and guidelines. Some of the more progressive states are developing that or have developed that. And so we don't, you know, we don't know really what some of the states might uh, look like in the future. In general, there is the trend that states require you to have a license. So if you're treating a patient who's physically in that state, you have to have that state license. Um, some states may require you also to be in that state. Um, I haven't seen a lot of that, but that that does, that is in existence for other um, practitioners where even though you're treating them tel via telehealth, you have to physically be in the same state that you are licensed and the patient is in. And then just one other note about that. If you're, for example, I treat patients who are in Colorado. Well, I have patients who travel out of state for vacation and they have BPV and want to do these assessments or check-ins while they're on vacation because they're quite concerned that they might have an, an episode. Well, I can't treat them while they're in vacation out of state, even though I treat them via telehealth in Colorado. So just to reemphasize, because that seems like that would be a great application of telehealth that actually wouldn't be permitted unless I had a license in that state and telehealth was permitted in that state, et cetera. Right. That's a, that's a very good point. Now, in terms of the reimbursement aspect of this, have you had any challenges with that or has it or is it just dependent upon the different insurers that you're using? What has your experience been with each of that for both of you? Yeah, so what when after we kind of met with our state group here, um, we the next step that we took is we called every single insurance contract that we had to say, we want to do this, you know, do, will you pay for it? Um, and that, I think, is a really good next step for somebody who's looking to do telehealth to do is speak with your insurance contract. Uh, Minnesota has parity, which is also something that anybody who's thinking about doing telehealth should look up to see what their state has. And with parity, what Minnesota says is the insurance company has to pay the same amount as if the person came in in person. So that's a really nice thing to have. And I don't know how many states, maybe you know, Sarah, states have parity but it's con it's continuing to increase um, so that's something that is really good in the state of Minnesota and then the other thing is um, our our state insurance our medical assistance product has also come out and said we will reimburse for telehealth and physical therapists and PTAs are an included provider included provider so that's also something where Minnesota's kind of paved the way in our state insurance that says yep we reimburse for telehealth uh, so then the next step after talking to our private contracts was just testing the waters, going out and billing. So our first couple of patients, we actually said, you know, if, if your insurance doesn't pay, we'll, we'll pay this for you. We'll take on the responsibility because we just didn't know what was going to happen. Um, so that was our way of being able to test it with our first couple of patients. But we had no problem getting paid. Um, we've had a little... We've had to do a little digging kind of with modifiers and how to bill it. And that's something that I've actually, um, Sarah Gallagher has been helpful and we've had talks about what's the best way to be billing these services. There's a modifier out there, a 95 modifier, which at first we thought was the right modifier to be using, but it does not pertain to physical therapists. Uh, and I did speak at length with the APTA about this and they also agreed that as PTs, we should not be using that modifier. So we've since switched over to um, 
to building our place of service slightly different. And that's how we feel now. And so far, we haven't had any, uh, we, we've been getting for everything we've been doing. Okay. Yeah, and I'll, I'll speak a little bit about our experience. It's similar is we reached out to insurance companies one by one that we had insurance contracts with. Uh, to make sure that we were um, abiding by the contract as well as permitted to perform telehealth services with their members. Uh, so that was the first step is sort of getting an authorization and it, seeing if we needed any additional language in our insurance contracts to include that. Of course, we also had to look at um, our liability too to make sure that our coverage covered, uh, our malpractice insurance covered telehealth as well. Uh, but then the next step was also then we have the patient reach out to their insurance and, and see if their specific plan covers telehealth. That's the next piece of it. So, for example, um, you know, Blue Cross might cover acupuncture, but not all plans within Blue Cross cover acupuncture. So each one of our patients individually reaches out and sees as if they have a benefit. And that's been a little bit tricky. We have a script written for our patients of what, how they call and ask about that because you get a customer service agent on, on the phone for an insurance carrier and they haven't heard of telehealth for physical therapy or tele-rehab. And so it's um, really, we're looking at this point to make sure that there's no exclusion information in their plans that would exclude them from um, getting that benefit. And then in terms of parity in Colorado, we have parity that says that you can't discriminate providing service via telehealth or in clinic and that the patient has the right to telehealth visits as well. But really there's not great language about our reimbursement equivalent. So far what we found is we've sort of done a pilot through each insurance contract that we have and we have gotten reimbursed at the same rate as our contracted rate. So we have found that we have in practice parity but um, I recently reached out to um, the Center for Connected Health Policies, which is a great resource on state legislation about our, our Colorado parity. And they have specific criteria for how they define whether you have financial or reimbursement criteria and uh, parity. And Colorado does not have that. But like I said, in practice, we have gotten the same reimbursement as if the patient was in clinic for our telehealth care delivery. And then the one thing I would add to um, Medicare, we don't currently see any Medicare patients, both that they haven't identified PTs as being a provider that they'll cover under telehealth. And then, you know, also to that population is the one that tends to be more at a fall risk. So it'll be interesting because I think there is some talk about you know, having PT be a loud provider for telehealth, you know, what is that going to look like though for Medicare patients? Certainly it could increase access, which is nice. Um, but, but my worry is kind of, you know, are these patients really appropriate? Yeah, I think that's a good right. point. I do think that the future is coming to physical therapy, having reimbursement by Medicare for telehealth services, but we're not there right now. And because it's not a covered services, service uh, 
for Medicare, that does mean that you can see these patients for cash reimbursement without being in violation of um, Medicare practice. Uh, so we can see those patients for cash, re cash pay. Um, and it currently, and I do think it's coming on the horizon that uh, CMS will have physical therapists included in reimbursement for telehealth services, but mm -hmm. not there yet. Yeah. Now, in terms of um, coding, is there different codes that you can bill or not bill with telehealth versus like a, you know, an in-clinic sort of session? I mean, probably shouldn't bill manual therapy. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think all the codes that you typically bill in person, we've been billing neural rehab, their activity is um, self-management and education is a code, especially with our migrainers that we use fairly often. Um, I don't know, are there any, maybe Sarah, you can speak to any other codes you would bill or not bill? So we've just looked at the CPT codes, and although there's not any hard facts about what you can and can't, we've been advised not to use CPT codes that have language that say direct contact with the patient, which makes a lot of sense for me in terms of increasing our risk for denial of payment. So that would include manual therapy and also therapeutic activities, I believe, as well. Um, so you just want to make sure that you are in the know about the CPT code and what you are billing. That's good advice. Um, is there any other thoughts either of you have about like anyone who was wanting to get into this or any practices that wanted to start up with this that they should be kind of more aware of based upon your experiences with this over time? I think Sarah kind of alluded to it, to really do your research before you jump in. I think we, our practice here, it was about a year of meeting with state groups, starting to form connections um, before we even kind of went it and tested the waters. I don't know how, what Sarah's experience is with that, but, but doing your research and there's really great websites out there um, that can help you with that. And that's kind of what I would recommend doing first and then connecting with this, you know, the vestibular practice, other people who are doing it. Uh, coming up at CSM this year, there's, we're going to be doing a talk along with a couple other PTs about telehealth and it'll be a two hour talk. So it'll encompass a little bit more billing practices some policies and procedures and our experience, um, both in the VA and some outpatient case studies. So I think that's a good next step for anybody who's interested in bringing it up. I agree. I think um, the very first step is to figure out why you want to do telehealth. What are you yeah. trying to accomplish? And so uh, asking that question helps sort of guide your pathway going forward. So for Sarah and I, there was a clear access problem to expert care. And so we were trying to solve that issue for our patient population. Uh, and so I think that's the 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 first question that you need to ask yourself is why and, and then who, and then you really need to look at your practice out, act, reach out to your, your state board. Um, a great resource is the Center for Connected Health Policy, that's the cchp.org. It has state legislation 
for each state on telehealth, and it's a very up-to-date and thorough and accurate resource. So that's a great resource. The APTA has um, guidelines and information that they've written on telehealth, and they're, they're looking to update that as well. And FSBPT also has guidelines. So those are some good starting points. That's great advice. Is there anything else either of you want to bring up? Or I think we covered quite a bit of information in a short period of time. No, I guess Sarah Gallagher, just to, to summarize um, my own experiences, it's been a great way to access patients that wouldn't otherwise have access. And beyond that, the patients have been very satisfied and surprised how much they can get out of telehealth. I think people are, are connected to the idea of I need to go in and see my practitioner and you know, the physical therapist needs to do something to me. And in all reality, we're trying to make people independent, get them back to functioning um, in their own environment, independent in their home exercise program. And so this to me, is a window into their home environment without having to travel and making them independent in the moment with their home exercise rather than doing it in the clinic, which is kind of a laboratory-like setting. You have sort of your ideal setup and um, cueing rather than and instead doing it in their home and problem-solving that so they don't have to problem-solve that on their own. So it has been a wonderful tool for us. And I think we're going to see a lot more of telehealth in the future. It's just um, continuing to grow. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that in general, people are busy now, and I think a lot of them want that convenience of not having to, like, drive 45 minutes possibly to an appointment and then drive back home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's mm -hmm. just a lot of time involved with some of that. So I think that that's a great a great yeah, point, and I also think it's another good point about how you're saying, like, you, you also as a therapist get to see kind of what their environment is too, whereas sometimes you're in your head you're just trying to kind of imagine what it looks like, but you can help them troubleshoot ways that they might be able to do something if you can actually see it in person. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah rather, than, rather than them try to have to recreate a scenario that you created in the clinic. Right. That's an excellent point. Um, okay. Well, sounds wonderful. I really appreciate both of you taking your time out to educate us on this topic. I think it's up and coming, and I think there'll probably be more information coming out over time that we'll probably have to revisit this in the future. Definitely. And if anybody is interested, um, like you mentioned, Maureen, in the beginning, we do have within the vestibular SIG a telehealth a task force. And so this year, it's only been about a year that we've had that committee. And this year, we um, have presented a poster at the International Vestibular Conference on telehealth. We are um, finishing up writing a, a paper of telehealth 
in the Stibular practice, this podcast, and then as Sarah O mentioned, we're going to be doing a presentation at CSM in January. And so we're going to be looking at our 2019 initiatives at CSM, but if anybody would like to join or be a part of the task force, they can reach out to the vestibular SIG and they can put us in, put the, those individuals in touch with myself, Sarah Gallagher. Okay, and they can just go to the the um, APTA SIG, like vestibular SIG website and find that information, correct? Yes, I believe so. I'll make sure that it's on there. <laughs> okay. I think that's probably the easiest way to do it. Yes. Well, I look forward to hearing your talk in uh, CSM. That'll be very interesting. Thank you for having us, Maureen. Yeah, thank yes, you, Maureen. Thank you. All right. Have a great day, both of you guys. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Thank you.